0: Well, if you will open with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter four. First Peter, chapter four. This morning's text uh, comes from verses 7 to 11. We're going to read the whole passage together. Uh, but uh, as the week was going on and I was uh, preparing to, to preach from this this text, uh, I really wanted to kind of hone in on verse 7. I felt that if, we, uh, if, I, if I carried on much longer, we would be in a situation that Paul was in. I don't know if you remember, he comes to Troas and he's preaching to uh, the, the believers there, and there's a man named Eutychus, and he's listening, and Paul's preaching for hours upon hours upon hours at night, and Eutychus falls asleep, and then he falls to his death, and uh, I felt as if there was uh, much that needed to be said here, and that if we uh, covered the whole passage, we might have some Eutychuses here, and uh the problem with that is that I'm not an apostle, I can't perform signs, so if you were to pass, you would you would be gone. <laughs> so, this morning, uh, we're going to read uh, verses 7 to 11. Our focus, though, is just going to be on verse 7. Uh, so, this will be a, a part one of two, and we'll look at the rest of it uh, next week. So, First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, as Your Word teaches us very clearly here, the end of all things is near. We are indeed living in the last days. You are awaiting nothing more to come except for the return of Christ. And this calls us especially to to live in a particular way, to live as those who are vigilant and who are serious about walking faithfully in accordance with the Gospel As we await the return of Christ. And you call us, especially here in the beginning of this passage, to be a people of prayer. To be a people who, together, as we fight in the midst of a spiritual battle, we cast ourselves at the mercies of your feet. So that when you answer us, when you give us the supplies we need when you strengthen our weak knees when you give us the boldness to carry out the great commission when you answer our prayers in this way Lord we we have no calls to boast in anything except in you to whom deserve glory and honor and dominion And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning that that as you speak to us from your word, that you would indeed teach us to be a very prayerful people. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an apocryphal quote by Martin Luther. It's attributed to him, but from everything I can gather He didn't actually say it. He didn't write it anywhere. It is nevertheless a thought provoking quote. Luther is reported to have said of the end of the world If I believed the world were to end tomorrow, I would still plant a tree today. If I believed the world were to end tomorrow, I would. Still plant a tree today. The point of the quote is that knowing that the end of the world is coming soon from a Christian perspective should not throw us into some kind of radical lunatic behavior. It's often the case that when people conceive of the end of the world or they believe that the end of the world is near, they fly into a kind of Panic. They live in ways that they would have never lived in before. I remember when the false prophet Harold Camping back in 2011 was predicting that the world was going to end that year. There were, there were people who were cashing out their inheritances to the tune of hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars to do their duty of promoting his teachings and warning the world that it's ending in this very year. They were selling their homes and they were going to live on compounds and awaiting the arrival of Christ there, according to Camping's predictions. We even see in the New Testament that there were some who, on the basis of the biblical doctrine of Christ's imminent return were quitting their jobs, were becoming idlers. They were no longer working. Paul had to admonish them in particular in Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses ten to twelve, he says, There if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. People often conceive of the end times as a time when you have to scramble to get your life in order. It's a, a time when, where you're just going to sit around and wait for the end to come. Or it's a time when you have to do all of the things that you've ever wanted to do whether those things are good or whether they're wicked. You've got to get it all in before the end comes. But this particular quote that I read communicates the opposite idea. If I believe the world were to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree. It gets at the idea of living a life that is faithful at all times and then just continuing to do so as that day draws near. And this is very similar to what Peter is teaching here in our passage. He is speaking about living in light of the end. He has just written in verses 5 and 6 of this Chapter about the certainty that God will judge the living and the dead. And of a day that will come when the dead in Christ will be, will be raised by the Spirit. And now beginning in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. It's, it's near. We are living. In the last days, we are not at this point in history waiting for God to make another covenant, as the Old Testament saints were, as they were awaiting the coming of the New Covenant. We are not like Abraham, who had to look far off in the distance for God to fulfill promises made to him, and and who knew that there would be at least a period of 400 years until the promises made to him would be fulfilled and and even at that point the end would not come we are not like david waiting for god to raise up one of his offspring to inherit an everlasting kingdom We are not like Jeremiah who had to look beyond the years of exile to hope in a day when God would then inaugurate His new covenant. And again, questions about what would come after that new covenant was inaugurated were still present. In other words, we are not waiting for God to do something new before the end comes. We're we're not awaiting more progressive revelation to be unfolding those promises made long ago. We we have the fullness of revelation of God now. He, He has accomplished His work of redeeming sinners through Christ. And now, the only thing we await for on the horizon is Christ's return. We are living on the other side of the cross now. We are living in a time when the new covenant has been established by the death and resurrection of Christ where Christ has ascended to the right hand of God. And and again, now what we await is His return on the clouds of heaven in the same way He went into heaven. To use the biblical language... We are living now and have been living in the last days where there remains but one more decisive act of God to sum up all of history, which is the imminent return of Christ. And the question that is posed to us is, given that the return of Christ is imminent, that the end of all things, as Peter says, is at hand. That it is near. That as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That at any moment, as people are eating and drinking and are being merry, the Lord could return. Given that this is the case, how then are we to live? Peter, in this passage, gives us four directives about living in light of the end of all things. And while each of these directives that he gives requires a seriousness about them, that we're, we're supposed to understand that we really are living now on the edge of eternity, the actions that he calls us to undertake are really just those of simple Christian faithfulness. It's it's nothing incredibly radical. So I want you to begin considering these these directives here with me this morning. And as I said, there's four here in this passage, but this morning I really just want to focus on the first one that he gives in verse 7. So the first directive Peter gives here, and what we're especially considering today, is that we, in light of the end times, are to be a people of serious prayer. We are to be a people of serious prayer. Peter says again in verse Seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers or unto your prayers. Now, you can see clearly that Peter draws a close connection. Between the end times and prayer. The first necessitates the second. But the question is why is that? What is the connection there? Why does living in the last days especially require such a diligence and need for prayer? Well, notice a little bit further down what Peter says about these end times that we live in. In verse 12, it is a time that these early Christians are in that continues even throughout the rest of the history of the church. In verse 12, it is a time that is marked by fiery trials which come upon you to test you. And this is explained further on in verse 17, when Peter writes there, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, one of the things about this time is that it is a time for judgment. And for the church, this isn't a, a judgment of of punishment, but it is a a kind of judgment of testing. It's a refining time. It's what Peter had said back in chapter 1. It's a time with various trials, that all of these trials come upon you as the people of God, he says in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it is a time, these times that are now present, that Peter says are at hand, it is a time of great difficulty that God uses to mold His people through various crosses into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. You can think there is a pretty significant difference between the the days of the people of God in the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Covenant. There's no doubt some overlap. The righteous remnant of the people of God in the Old Covenant did indeed, in many of the same ways, suffer persecution. Many of the prophets, indeed, were, were put to death. But the expectation of the people of God as a whole under the old covenant is that if they were faithful to obey God, God would bless them in the land, prosper them, and turn their enemies away. That's not the case for the people of God in the days of the new covenant. Our faithfulness will bring a blessedness to us, but that blessedness Jesus and the other apostles explain is, involves persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for, for righteousness' sake. The, the expectation of the people of God now is that blessings from on high will not result in any sort of material, national prosperity. It may indeed involve death. These are the times that we live in now. A refining period. We see similar statements as well that are made in, in other parts of Scripture about the last about the difficulties that will be present. It's a time when many false teachers will spread their false teachings. 1 John 2, verse 18. John says there, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. There are many false teachers who have gone out. And this is an indication of the times we live in. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, before describing all of the rampant wickedness that will be present in the last days, the Apostle Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The last days are difficult days. It is a time when the people of God find themselves as strangers and sojourners and aliens in the world. It is a time where persecution and suffering and testings of these sorts characterize the lives of God's people. It's a time of much deceitfulness. A time when many will scoff at the Gospel of God and a time when Christians will face many many spiritual battles. If that is the case then, it makes sense why Peter says that we must be a people of prayer. We must be self-controlled. We must not be driven by impulses and blown about by every cultural wind that is blowing. We must be... Anchored as a people of God in the Word of God. And we must discipline ourselves. Control ourselves. We must think clearly with sober judgments. We must have our minds informed to think properly about the world we live in by the Word of God. And Peter says all of this, this self-discipline is for the sake of your prayers. Leads to to something even more essential praying the people of God. Praying is one of the primary ways that we stay alert, that we keep guard, we fight well in spiritual battles. In fact, Peter himself knew very well what can happen when you are not being watchful in prayer. One of the most tragic moments in the Gospel is when Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was that very night when Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, and eventually handed over to be crucified. He knew that the time was near when he would go through the darkest hour in bearing the wrath of God in his flesh on behalf of sinners. So what does he do? He withdraws to go away and to pray. And While he's there, he commands his disciples to pray also with him. Be watchful and alert in prayer. He knew that they too were about to face a grave trial. And so He commands them. He says, remain here and watch with Me. And That language of watching is basically synonymous in the New Testament for praying. This is how you remain alert And on guard. And after withdrawing alone and praying for about an hour, Jesus then returns to his disciples. And what does he find? He he doesn't find them praying. He finds them asleep. And he speaks to Peter specifically. And he says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? You could not remain awake and pray for an hour. Then he warns him, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, for his part, did not heed this charge. He heard it, it's coming from his Lord. It's coming from the lips of his master who he says he's going to follow with his life. Jesus tells him, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he doesn't heed it. He, along with the rest of the disciples, returned to their sleep. And then, not long after this, the trial of temptation came for Peter. Three times. After the Lord Jesus had been arrested, He had been asked if He knew Jesus. Aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you one who's been following Him? Don't you bear His name? And all three times, Peter failed the test. And he denied His Lord. It is no doubt the case that even after Peter had been graciously restored, the memory of that horrible night and those horrible words, I do not know the man. It is no doubt those words stuck with him. But it is not something you forget. And especially so when it's recorded in the Gospels to remind you. in the grace of God, he did learn the lesson. He learned to heed the words of the Lord, to be alert, and to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And here, in 1 Peter four as he writes to Christians who are presently in the midst of a trial. As he writes to those who are living in the end of all things, he addresses them as if he were back in the garden. He knows that the temptation will arise to deny the Lord Jesus. The temptation will come especially when all of those who are around you are shaming you for your identification as a Christian. And most especially when your very life is is threatened. He knows that this temptation is very real to deny Christ. And he knows that no amount of fleshly human resolve, no amount of mental determination will be able to keep them faithful. Peter had tried it that way. He had he had operated from his own flesh he'd been down that road when when Jesus you'll remember prophesied that Peter would deny him three times he, he warned him Peter, this is coming this is gonna happen what does Peter do he he doesn't fall to his knees in prayer he's not he doesn't go to the Lord asking for the Lord's help and strength to Keep his tongue pure from sin. No, what does he do? He he spoke from his fleshly impulses. He spoke as a matter of pride. He said to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Though all the other disciples deny you, though they fall away, that will never happen with me. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. This is who I am. I'm Peter. I'm the leader here. I will remain faithful to you until the end. And yet, the rooster crowed three times still. When we are living, friends, in the flesh and attempting to live the Christian life and to be faithful and obedient to God on our own strength, on our own resolves, when the church believes that it can fulfill the commands of Christ and bring Him glory by its own strategies, by its own resolves and methods and will worship, then prayer will always be the last thing that we think of and the last thing that we prioritize. As individuals, we will try everything imaginable before going to God in prayer. And as a church, we will treat our corporate prayer meetings as only a prayer meeting. Nothing that is of vital importance. Prayer will be nothing more than an afterthought. It will be an addendum. It will be something that we know we ought to do because we've been commanded to do it, but certainly it is nothing of central importance. Apart from prayer, we might be able to construct the appearance of true, vibrant Christianity. We may be able to fill all the pews. We may be able to build large buildings. We may be able to raise millions of dollars. We may be able to buy the most expensive equipment. But we will not be able to say that the glory of God is among us because we would have built all of this ourselves. I'm reminded of when I was able to go to Europe one year on a Reformation tour to see some of the major sites of the Protestant Reformation. A time in the history of the church that was really marked by genuine revival. A genuine work of God that spread throughout all of Europe. It was a time that was perhaps most similar to Josiah's reforms in the Old Testament. Of course, if you know the story, the law of God had been lost for hundreds of years. Nobody knew it, many of them didn't even know it existed. And then they discover the law and they read it and they, they recognize how much they have departed from and sinned against God and they repent and they turn back to His Word. The Reformation was very much in many ways like this in that for a long time, the heart of the Gospel, that sinners are justified by the free grace of God, received through faith alone, apart from any works done in righteousness. That very center and heart of the Gospel had largely been lost. It had been absent. And all of these superstitious traditions had been constructed to blur out the truth of the Gospel. And then in the grace of God, it was recovered in a true spiritual revival broke out. I'm reminded of being able to see where this took place. One day we were in Strasbourg, France, which is where John Calvin ministered alongside with Martin Butzer, who was mentioned this morning in Sunday school. And in Strasbourg, there was an enormous Catholic cathedral there, one of the largest cathedrals I've ever seen, the Strasbourg Cathedral. and You were able to go inside and, and tour it, and so that's what we did. We went in, and we looked around, and I remember as I was looking around, initially I was just sort of shocked by everything that I was seeing, really just the, the genuine beauty that was, that was present, the artistry. Stained glass windows, the amount of woodwork. I mean, this this building took hundreds of years to build. And so the sort of initial reaction as you walk in was just one of amazement and, and shock at what you're seeing. But then I remember looking up front, and right in the middle of the cathedral was the altar where the Eucharist would be served. I was reminded at that moment of all of the damnable superstitions that are involved in the Mass, where the idea is that in the Eucharist in particular, the priest calls upon the Holy Spirit from the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ, and that by eating His literal body and blood, grace is then infused Within you, which is a necessary part of your salvation, and in particular, your justification before God. you want to be righteous before God? you've got to do this. And you've got to do this over and over and over again. That's how grace is given to you. But even more, I remember Seeing a stained glass window above the Eucharist table. And, and there was a figure who was seated on a throne looking down on all of the faithful. And as I moved a little bit closer, I was able to see who this figure was on the throne. And you know who it was not? It was not Jesus. It was Mary, seated on the throne, crowned with glory. And I remember all of the Mariology that was connected to this Mass and this worship. And it was as if in that very moment, I felt as if I was like the Apostle Paul in Athens when he was... Surrounded by all of the beauty of the idolatry of the pagans. All of their ornate idols that they had constructed and painted. And Luke says when he, when he looked around and saw all of this, his spirit within him was provoked. Because this worship was leading people to hell. What I saw was that this was a very beautiful structure that took hundreds of years to build that it was identified with the name of Christ and God was not there. It was Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. That's what you're witnessing in those large structures. Brothers and sisters, the point is that we can do all of the religious works we want. We can construct fancy, expensive buildings. We can amaze, leave legacies for later generations to remember us by. But if all of our efforts, are done in the strength of our own flesh and if we are not dependent upon God in prayer, if we are not watching and fighting by means of prayer, then all that we would have built and all that we could have built would have been for absolutely nothing. For God would not be there we would be able to say we did this on our own. He is a God who delights to act on behalf of His people. He is a God who rejoices to be glorified in and through them. But the means that He has ordained To carry out His will on earth is through the means of the prayers of His people. That's how He has ordered His works. And this, not just as individuals, but also as a corporate gathered people. We find in the book of Acts especially that it was the regular practice of the early church to come together to pray. It was like it was just second nature to them. This is just what we do. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Just a couple of chapters over in chapter 4 of the book, book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are arrested for preaching the Gospel. They're threatened and they're Warned not to do that anymore. And then they refuse and then they're released. And then we find that they go to their friends in the church and they all begin to pray together. In, in chapter 4, verse 29, they prayed to the Lord that He would, quote, grant to His servants to continue to speak His word with all boldness while He stretches out His hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of His holy servant Jesus. And then in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The Lord granted to them their request to Speak boldly. Jesus had already told the apostles that He was going to pour out His Spirit upon them in such a way that they, in particular, would be able to perform all kinds of signs and wonders that confirm that the apostles knew. The this is going to happen. Jesus said it was going to happen. And yet they continued to pray that it would happen. Knowing, knowing that the Lord would do something was, was not an excuse not to ask Him to do it. It was, it was that which provoked them all the more to pray that He would act. On another occasion, in Acts chapter 12, the Apostle James is killed by Herod and then Peter is arrested yet again. And so what does the church do? They pray. What can they do? Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. On that very night, an angel of the Lord came to Peter's prison cell and set him free. And after he gets out, Luke tells us in verses 12 to 16 that he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. What were they praying about? The assumption from the text is they're praying that Peter would be released. That's why they began praying in the first place. Then in verse 13, And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It's his, it's his angel. Somebody who looks like Peter. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They had been praying for Peter to be released, but when it happened, especially because of the way in which it happened, and no doubt because of the quickness in which it happened, they were shocked when he turns up at the doorstep. And Peter had to tell them everything that had happened. And he exhorted them to then go tell others no doubt so that they could hear and be encouraged by how God had answered their prayers. Peter got arrested. We gathered together to pray. We had no way to get him out. We prayed. The Lord answered. Peter shows up. Praise God! They rejoice together of the answered prayers of the Lord. Friends, that's often the case even with us. We would be here all afternoon if I were to tell you the countless times in prayer meetings we have prayed very specifically and very intentionally and regularly for matters related to the church. Our, Our needs and our spiritual desires, what we want to see happen here in the lives of the people of God here and outside. And it's happened so often that I shouldn't really be in a place where I'm surprised to see God answer prayers in the way that He does, but often I am. I'm like these early believers right? who we are praying for something very specific, and then when it happens, did that just happen? <laughs> Amazed. This has happened a lot here. And, and I want to encourage you this morning. I want to stir you on, really, this morning with, with two examples. And again, trust me, there are, there are way, way more. I was pulling my hair out just to figure out, you know, which two to, to tell you about. Here's two examples. One is about a need that we had, one is about a a want. So about four years ago, maybe four or five, I can't remember exactly. We did not have a significant budget. We still don't have a significant budget. And we did not have uh, much financial security in the bank. And then we started having a leaky roof. Now to replace this leaky roof was going to cost a lot of money. And we could ask for offerings and donations specific to it, but that's still a lot of money. And there's no way in a short period of time that we're going to be able to take care of this. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we pray that the Lord would shut up the heavens so that it stops raining. (laughs) But the other thing is just to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I don't know what to do here. I have no strategies in mind. I'm not some fundraising guy. I don't know what to do with this. We're putting it in your hands. We get some quotes as to how much it's going to cost to fix this roof. and it was somewhere in the range of 15,000 or so, give or take, maybe a little bit higher. can't remember the exact number. Still, a lot of money. Out of the blue, one day we get a we, we get something in the mail addressed to the church. We open it up, and uh, well, what's in it is a check made out to the church from a local bank here in town, from somebody who had passed back in the '80s. She had passed and left some finances to the church in her estate. And apparently, somehow, that never got paid out to the church. This little bank just lost track of it. Little bank then gets bought out by a big bank. Big bank does an audit. They discover, this is owed to the church. So from the 80s, a lady passes... And the finances come to the church at the exact time we need it to cover the cost of the roof. The Lord is gracious to provide for us in these ways. And again, those stories could be multiplied. That's one about a need we've had before. Here's another one that's more recent. It's about a spiritual want. This past fall, during our, one of our prayer meetings, we had a prayer request. Harrison gave us a very specific prayer request. He said that there was a young man that he knew who had been showing some interest in hearing the Gospel and was open to talking about it some more said that he intended to meet with this young man in the coming weeks and he was going to share the gospel with him, exhort him to trust in Christ and and he asked that we would be in prayer during this meeting and for this meeting and so that's what we did. We took this desire to the Lord and we prayed that the Lord would give Harrison boldness to speak. The gospel clearly, and that the seeds that were sown would bear fruit to the glory of God and the salvation of a sinner. Add to this specific request, the more general prayer request we had been making for the church, praying specifically that, that the Lord would encourage us in our labors here by bringing sinners to salvation that we can see. That we would, we would see that and be able to rejoice over the salvation of, of the lost. I think it was a couple of weeks later maybe went by, we gathered together again for prayer. And, and during our prayers of thanksgiving, Harrison gave us all an update. That young man that we had prayed for upon hearing the gospel, believed the gospel. Is now looking to publicly identify himself with Christ through baptism. God answered a very specific request for a very specific soul And He does that and delights to do that all the time. If you are here this morning and you know Christ, it's because somebody prayed for you when the Gospel was going out so that you would have your eyes opened, your ears opened to see the beauty of Christ, to hear the beauty of the Gospel, so believe and be saved. Friends, I I do not know many things that are more soul-satisfying and strengthening and God-glorifying than when God's people, having gathered together to pray very specifically for God's help, see Him work clearly. I, I don't know many things that are more encouraging and more spiritually exciting. I don't know many things that are more uniting for the people of God. It's as, if, it's as if there's some reason why God exalts prayer for His people and calls us to be a people of prayer. When I exhort you all this morning as a shepherd to sheep, to come to prayer meeting. This, these kinds of things are the reasons why. It's not because there's some bad medicine that you know you need to take and I know I've got to tell you to take it and we've just got to kind of get through it. It's not for that at all. No, it's because of what I've seen here. It's because of God answering the prayers of His people gathered together. I've used this illustration to describe preaching before, but I think it's just as apt here. But the prayer meeting is really very much like finding a chest of treasure that does not have a bottom And in that chest of treasure, we find all of the prayers of God's people. And when we gather together, it's as if, especially during our times of thanksgiving, we we get to dip our hands into the chest and hold them before one another and say, Look! Look at what God did! Look at how He answered." And we get to celebrate and rejoice together. That's not bad medicine. That is sweet honey for the soul. And the treasure to be treasured. I want all of you to know the joy that is really inexpressible in seeing God act. And I think that the more that happens, the more we will grow to understand both from the Word and from our own experience the connection between living in light of the end of all things in prayer. The connection will click all the more we will know why it is such a seamless connection by Jesus and by Peter and by Paul and all the apostles to link watchfulness and spiritual readiness and fighting against sin and enduring suffering and remaining faithful to Christ. All of these linked together with prayer. It will make all the more sense not only in our minds, but in our hearts. Because it's through prayer that God supplies us with what we need. and He keeps us in His grace. And He brings Himself glory in the lives of His saints. It will help us to understand all the more how it is that God can be jealous for His own glory and can pursue with all of His decrees, all of His wills, the exaltation of His own glory, and yet through that very pursuit, bring His people joy. That's how. Because He receives the glory and the answered prayers of His people And our hearts overflow with joy as we celebrate those answers. So friends, I just want to exhort you to take from that treasure chest and hold it up before God and and look at it and celebrate it with us all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, You are indeed a good God. And oh, how good You have been to us here. How You have supplied us with our needs and how You have brought Yourself glory and our hearts encouragement and joy. And I pray, Lord, we would heed your word, that we indeed would be a people strong in prayer, that we would take it up as our great weapon, and that as we fight with it together, as we use it, Lord, that you would continue to be gracious to answer our prayers and to unite us together through them. I ask this all in Jesus' name.